I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 29. And in just a moment, I'll read from verse 31 into chapter 30, verse 24. Last week, we unpacked Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30, which told us about Jacob's first seven years in Haran. He spent about 20 years there total, and uh, during his first seven years, he served Laban in order to acquire Rachel in marriage. Uh, to Jacob's surprise, he was tricked by Laban, and at the, at the end of that seven years, he, he ended up marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah, and then also Rachel. So, so Jacob had two wives. Each of his wives had uh, her own maidservant, and so Jacob has two wives, and these two maidservants set the stage for Jacob's second period of seven years in Haran, which uh, this passage tells us about this morning, with the focus being on the bearing of many children. So, uh, if you could fix your eyes on Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, the one who is worthy speaks to us through the inscripturated word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. For women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. 
In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we humble ourselves before your holy, life-giving, soul-strengthening word. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would shine the light of truth into our hearts that we might know you better and be the more equipped to walk faithfully with you in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, right off the bat, I want to speak an important word of application to those of you who are part of a covenant household. By covenant household, I mean a family that through baptism and confession bears the name Christian, a family in which at least one spouse or at least one of the parents has pledged loyalty to the Lord God, a family that enjoys the privileges, responsibilities, and warnings of belonging to God's gracious covenant of redemption. If you are part of a covenant household, then I give you this encouragement. The Lord is in the middle of your household mess. The Lord is in the middle of your family drama. The Lord is in the middle of the heap of your complicated relationships. The alternative to that conviction, the alternative to that is to believe that you are alone in your own chaotic mishmash and that you have to fix it on your own in order to get God's attention and help. And then if perhaps you fix it well enough to impress God's holy gaze, then God might start helping you to perfect what you have started. I suppose that there are many religious homes that operate according to the God helps those who help themselves principle, but that is a lie. That is not a biblical way of operating. Just, just before we get into the details, just think about Jacob's household. 
He had two wives, Leah and Jacob. Although God permitted polygyny in the Old Testament, it falls far short of God's original design for one man to be wedlocked to one woman for life. Polygyny is bound to be unsatisfying and problematic for the husband and his wives. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, Genesis 29, verse 30, and Jacob's lack of love for Leah amounted to hate, verse 31, and Leah experienced this hate, this lack of love, this being regarded as second best. She regarded it as an affliction, verse 32. That said, Leah was bursting forth with children, four sons in verses 31 to 35, and then two additional sons and a daughter in chapter 30. Meanwhile, Rachel was barren for several years, and she looked upon her fruitful sister with envy, chapter 30, verse 1. However, Rachel had the majority share of the marriage bed, and in chapter 30, verses 14 to 16, Leah had to negotiate a transaction with Rachel in order to secure conjugal privileges for the night. This friction and competition between Leah and Rachel was compounded by their use of their own maidservants in order to obtain additional children. Just as Sarah had given her maidservant Hagar to Abraham in order to acquire a son through Hagar, so Rachel and then Leah did likewise here in chapter 30. Although the purpose of our passage is not to describe parenting dynamics or sibling dynamics. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand that children growing up in such a setting are bound to reflect family politics in various ways. And so we are not surprised when a number of years later, the first 10 sons conspired to act wickedly against the 11th son, the much-loved son of the favored wife, Joseph. And you thought that your family has problems. <laughs> but here's the thing. Your family does have problems. Your family is made up of sinners at varying degrees of maturity or immaturity. Though polygyny is probably not on the table, it may well be that a husband fails to love his wife as he ought and the wife feels afflicted. Instead of a wife finding rest in her husband's love, she may rely too much on her children in order to boost her fragile identity. Children are a precious gift from the Lord, but they are no substitute for a healthy marriage. A husband may be upset by the unrealistic demands of a frustrated wife, as when Rachel said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. For one reason or another, how many marriages among Christians hobble on with each new day compounding the unresolved issues of the past. And to broaden the scope of possible problems, parents may have profound regrets about past decisions and actions related to work or to the marriage relationship or to household finances or to parenting and childhood education strategies or to priorities related to church and 
sports and extracurricular activities and all kinds of things. If Jacob had an ideal picture in his mind of what marriage to Rachel would be like when he first fell in love with Rachel during his first few weeks in Haran, we can be sure that that ideal picture was quickly and severely shattered. Indeed, it was shattered as soon as Leah entered the picture as wife number one. And the shattering continued with all the friction, envy, and internal family politics. And the shattering reached its climax when, his, when Jacob's guilty sons lied to him and told him that his beloved son Joseph was dead. And when that happened, Jacob refused to be comforted and lived in a state of depression for 20 years. And it wasn't until he learned that Jacob, I mean that Joseph was actually alive that his spirit was revived. But you also, you also may have had in your mind an ideal picture of marriage, of children and family life and the flourishing of your household, and yet your soul aches at the realization of failures, trials, pressures, relational dynamics that you haven't resolved. The ache lingers. The pain is palpable. Regrets haunt you. Complexities make you want to scream or give up. And in the face of all that, my question is, do you believe that the Lord is with you in your messy family life? Do you believe that the Lord is in the middle of the challenges facing your household? Do you believe that the Lord is near, that he is a rock of refuge for you and your loved one, that he offers himself to you as a strong support in the midst of your weakness, that he is building something beautiful out of the unimpressive raw material that your life and family represent, that he is superintending your mixture of favorable and unfavorable circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes in and through your life. Do you really trust him? Or do you mostly just feel that you have to pick up and sort out all the broken pieces on your own? Remember that this passage that we read was not written for the benefit of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. They were living all this stuff in the moment. Instead, this passage was written down for our benefit so that we might derive encouragement and hope. Therefore, let us observe the Lord's activity in Jacob's family so that we might be encouraged and have hope that this same Lord is also at work in our families and our lives. So, you can read this passage and easily discern the problems. But here's the thing, don't miss the fact that the Lord is right in the middle of it, present with Jacob and his family in order to fulfill his promises to Jacob. First, looking at verse 31, notice the Lord's sovereign act to open Leah's womb. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The sovereign Lord opened Leah's womb but did not open Rachel's womb until several years later. The Lord's decision was not random, by the way, but he did this in response to the fact that Leah was hated. 
and he saw it. Do you remember the song that I quoted last week from the pulpit? That the Lord mingles a portion of pain and pleasure in our experience and that that we are to trust him for his wise bestowment? On the one hand, the Lord gives Leah the pleasure of bearing many children as a way of compensating her for the pain of being the unloved wife. On the other hand, the Lord moderates Rachel's pleasure at being much loved by Jacob by keeping her womb barren for many years. The Lord moderates all of these things. And his sovereign decision to do this or to do that cannot be subjected to human scrutiny. The Lord does not answer to humanity's fickle philosophies of fairness. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. No one can stay his hand and no one can find fault with anything that he chooses to do. Here, the Lord shows compassion to Leah by opening her womb. The Lord sees and hears her affliction and responds with compassion. The Lord sees and hears your affliction and responds with compassion. Do you find comfort in the Lord's compassion? For Leah's part, keeping in mind that Leah is no paragon of virtue, having just participated in her father's plan to deceive Jacob into marrying her, for Leah's part, she demonstrates faith by rightly interpreting her fruitful womb as the result of the Lord's compassion and by naming two of her children in honor of the Lord. All of these, all of these the names of these 11 sons are in one way or another a play, a play on words. She names her first son Reuben, meaning see a son, and says in verse 32, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, although she incorrectly infers that this will win Jacob's love, which it seems not to do. She names her second son Simeon, which is related to the Hebrew word heard, and says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She names her third son Levi, which is related to the Hebrew word for attached or joined, and says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she names her fourth son Judah, which is related to the Hebrew word praise, and says, this time I will praise the Lord. As I already mentioned, the implication of verse 31 is that while the Lord opened Leah's womb, the Lord did not open Rachel's womb until much later. And Jacob recognizes the Lord's sovereignty over the womb when he replies to his his wife's demand to give her children. Uh, She says at the beginning of chapter 30, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob, angry on account of Rachel's unreasonable demand, replies, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb, although Jacob is angry? and probably exasperated, and perhaps insensitive. Nevertheless, he speaks the truth. Jacob understands that Jacob is not God. Jacob understands that Jacob cannot dictate what happens in the womb. Jacob understands that it is God's unique prerogative to give 
or to withhold the fruit of the womb. We might adapt the statement of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord withholds. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't go on complaining about it. Only trust him. In any case, Rachel proceeds with a plan to obtain children by giving her maidservant Bilhah to Jacob, which results in two sons. Rachel names uh, Bilhah's first son Dan, which is related to the Hebrew word judge, and says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Rachel discerns the hand of God in the birth of Dan to her maidservant. And when she says, God has judged me, she means something like, God has judged in my favor. God has vindicated me. God has heard my prayer. Rachel names Bilhah's second son, Naphtali, which is related to the Hebrew word wrestling, and says, with many wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Now, Rachel's comment here seems exceedingly overdramatic. <laughs> but it testifies to the intense, envy-laden competition she had with her sister over the production of children. Bilhah's two sons were probably born in the same time period that Leah's first four sons were born. Keep in mind, about all, all, of, this, all of this happened in about a seven or seven and a half year period. Once Leah ceased bearing children, chapter 30, verse 9, she gives her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob, which also results in two sons. Leah names Zilpah's first son Gad, which is related to the Hebrew phrase good fortune, and says, good fortune has come. Leah names Zilpah's second son Asher, which is related to the Hebrew word for happy, saying, happy am I, for women have called me happy. Now, turning to verses 14 to 21 of chapter 30, this is very interesting. Uh, here we learn of the circumstances uh, leading to Leah's three additional children. As Rachel was Jacob's favored wife, Leah had less access to Jacob. At harvest time, Leah's son Reuben, who would have been uh, probably around five years old, he brought in some mandrakes from the field. Mandrakes were love apples. Henry Morris comments, and I quote, the mandrake is a small orange-colored berry-like fruit much esteemed in ancient times as an aphrodisiac and inducer of fertility, end quote. And this helps us understand uh, the interest on Rachel and Leah's part in the mandrakes. So Rachel wanted some of the mandrakes for herself. From Leah's point of view, Rachel was a taker. Is it a small matter, she says in verse 15, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son, my five-year-old son's mandrakes too? <laughs> in response, Rachel proposes a trade. Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Leah agrees and now presses her claim upon Jacob when he returned home in the evening. Verse 16, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes, so he lay with her that night. Now, far more romantic overtures could be imagined. <laughs> but such things go with the territory of polygyny. But what is, but what is remarkable about this? is that 
right here, Scripture tells us that God is right in the middle of this mess. Okay? I mean, we might be tempted to think that God is more or less absent from a situation where wife number one hires her husband from the night, uh, for the night from wife number two. But what does Scripture say? Look at verse 17. God listened to Leah. God's right there answering prayer. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. God grants Leah's request. And so I say to you all, be encouraged. The Lord is apt to answer the prayers of his immature people who employ questionable tactics in pursuit of worthwhile goals. This is not an encouragement to remain stuck in immaturity. This is not an encouragement to employ questionable tactics, but it is an acknowledgement of the fact that although we do bring a fair amount of immaturity to the table, God doesn't write us off because of our immaturity. I'm going to share with you a quote from Chad Bird from his devotional meditation on this portion of Scripture. He writes, Weak and wavering, we follow him. Frightened and faltering, we nonetheless limp after Jesus. He did not say, come unto me, all you who have your act together, who boast idyllic households, who have dreamboat marriages. No, he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we do. Frustrated like Rachel, we come. Bitter like Leah, we come. Used like Bilhah and Zilpah, we come. And yes, selfish and overwhelmed like Jacob, we come. Leah names her fifth son, Issachar, which is related to the Hebrew word for wages or hire and says, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. That's in verse 18. Thereafter, Leah had a sixth son and names him Zebulun, which is related to the, the Hebrew words endowment and honor, and says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Whether or not Jacob did honor her, Leah did rightly understand that all of her sons were a good endowment, a precious gift from the Lord. And sometime, sometime later, Leah gave birth to a daughter whom she named Dinah, who will occupy a significant role in the tragic events of Genesis chapter 34. Lastly, as we come to verses 22 to 24 in chapter 30, it is finally Rachel's turn to give birth to a son. After several years of barrenness, the text says in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. It's not as if God was sleeping and unaware and somehow woke up and got involved. He, th this is indicating that it was, just at this, it was just at this time that he decided to act on Rachel's behalf in this way. Rachel named her son Joseph, which is related to the Hebrew phrases, may he add, and taken away, 
And she says, God has taken away my reproach, verse 23, and may the Lord add to me another son, verse 24. And another son would come several years later. So in the space of seven to seven and a half years, Jacob generated 11 of his 12 sons. Some years later, Rachel would give birth to her second son, Benjamin. Although Jacob and his household were flawed people, Nevertheless, the Lord was with Jacob. Remember chapter 28, verse 15. He was with Jacob in order to fulfill his promises to Jacob, which of course included offspring. Therefore, the Lord was with Jacob in order to build Jacob's family, indeed to build the great nation that he had promised to build out of Abraham. So the Lord was in the middle of Jacob's household mess, working through flawed people with complicated relationships in order to accomplish his purpose. The Lord saw Leah, looked upon her affliction, had compassion on her, and opened her womb. God listened to Leah, chapter 30, verse 17, and gave her additional children. God remembered Rachel, verse 22, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Moreover, both Leah and Rachel recognized the Lord's gracious hand. Leah said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, because the Lord has heard that I I am hated, God has given me my wages, God has endowed me with a good endowment. And Rachel said, God has taken away my reproach. This messy and chaotic family had God's attention, and they knew it. So take heart. God fulfills his promises through flawed people and flawed families. Do you qualify? Now, as I I, uh, bring this to a close, the the final encouragement and line of thought I want to leave with you as an encouragement to lean into this passage and let it encourage you and strengthen you to do your part to build your house, your household, your family. Okay, One of the tasks that every one of us is involved in to one degree or another is the task of building a family, building a household, building an intergenerational legacy. I realize that there is a sense in which Jacob's family is unique in the sense that the Lord had positioned Jacob uniquely in his plan to father the children of Israel, who were the special recipients of God's covenant grace and through whom the Messiah would come. At the same time, though, we ought to see Israel's founding fathers and founding mothers as an example and encouragement to us. So just think about this line of thought, okay? First, it is evident in our passage that the Lord built Jacob's house, his family. Second, it is evident in Psalm 127 that although the Lord is the decisive builder of a household, he does it through people. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There is a building to be done. Men and women build houses, households, families, extended families, tribes, nations. And if their building efforts are not backed by and consistent with what the Lord is doing, then their building efforts are ultimately vain and will come to nothing. 
But if their building efforts are backed by the Lord and accompanied by the Lord's blessing, then their building efforts are meaningful and valuable in God's sight. Psalm 127 goes on to say in verses 3 to 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Third, in light of these two passages, it is evident that Leah and Rachel played an important instrumental role in building up the house of Israel. All their drama notwithstanding, Their determination to have children matters. Motherhood matters. Childbearing matters. Child rearing matters. Many of you are familiar with the beautiful reflection of redeeming grace that a man named Boaz once displayed in his care for Ruth, who became his wife. And when Boaz entered into the covenant of marriage with Ruth, the people and the elders who witnessed Boaz's marriage oath said to Boaz, they said to Boaz, may the Lord make the woman Ruth who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Ruth chapter 4 verse 11. As part of fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord built up the house of Israel through Rachel and Leah. Together, Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel, and by God's grace, Ruth would follow in their honorable footsteps. Inasmuch as our respective households are covenant households that are bound to the Lord through faith and baptism and Christian confession, we place high value on the household as a place where the Lord is actively at work. We value marriage. We value the gift of children. We welcome the sons and daughters that the Lord sends to us. We value the family and the extended family that grow up through the offspring that the Lord gives to us. And in all this, we we remember that far more is involved than simply the physical aspect, physical conception, physical birth, physical life, physical health, physical provision. The physical is necessary, of course, but the physical is not enough. To truly build a house that honors the Lord That requires spiritual vitality and moral beauty. Ponder these four verses from Proverbs chapter 14. Verse 1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hand tears it down. Verse 11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Verse 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. And verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly, and we might add, tears down his or her house. Are you building your house, or are you tearing it down? And so, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with a paradox, a paradox 
is something that seems contradictory but actually is not contradictory. But in paradox, there is a tension, and you have to live in this tension. It's a good tension. Here's the paradox. Take great care to build your house wisely, righteously, and patiently. And yet, trust the Lord to build your house despite your serious shortcomings. You see, we acknowledge our shortcomings, but we don't go out of our way to indulge in them. In fact, we turn away from our failings as much as possible. At the same time, we pursue wisdom and righteousness and good character, but not as if our effort, not as if our moral effort guarantees a successful outcome. We take God seriously, but we do not take ourselves too seriously. The outcome is not in our hands. Our effort is not decisive. We never get beyond the place where we need the Lord to treat us far better than we deserve to be treated. We never get beyond the place where we are debtors to sovereign grace, to divine mercy, and to the magnificent cross. Commenting on Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 to 35, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who I have quoted off and on during the sermon series, he says, and I quote, the two key institutions of Israel, priesthood, Levi, and royalty, Judah, came from an unplanned and unwanted marriage. He is referring, of course, to Jacob's unplanned and unwanted marriage to Leah, through whom came Levi and Judah. Think about that and think about all the messiness of, the, of, of this passage. And then think about this. Through Levi, the Lord raised up a priesthood to administer a sacrificial system by which sinners could maintain fellowship with a holy God. And through Judah, the Lord ultimately raised up a perfect priest king who would establish his kingdom by offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. And this is what Christianity is all about. The Lord is so in the middle of our sinful mess that he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, be reconciled to God, and live to righteousness. If the Lord was willing to go to that extent to demonstrate his great love for me and to purchase me for his kingdom, then he is most certainly willing to help me uphold me and work through me in the context of my family. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, parents and children, older siblings and younger siblings, I bid you all to apply the words of the Apostle Peter when he said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Where is the Lord in the midst of your family drama? Right there, giving grace to the humble 
and carrying the weight of every anxiety that you cast upon him. The alternative is to proudly bear all the weight on your own, which will most certainly sink you. Therefore, lean on him and let him carry you and your family and sing with great conviction when we sing our final hymn that God would give us faithful homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through Jesus you treat us far better than we deserve to be treated. And you do not treat us according to what our sins deserve. But you bring forgiveness, renewal, transformation. Father, I pray that you would build this congregation. Pray that you would build our households, build our own individual lives, that together we would reflect the glory and the grace of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.